Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? We got a fun episode today. Our guest is John Davi, CEO and CIO of Astoria Portfolio Advisors, which provides ETF managed portfolios and sub advisory services. Today's episode, John walks through his macro plus quant approach to the markets. We touch on his entrance into the ETF space with two tickers I love, PPI and ROE. We also talk about global diversification, opportunities in Europe and Japan, and why he focuses on after-tax, after-inflation returns. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long-time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself. But with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with John Dobby. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. You know, I've kind of known you as the ETF guy even before ETF guys were around, but you spent a lot of time on what many would consider to be sort of in the plumbing of traditional Wall Street. Tell us a little bit about that time back then when people called e, uh, ETFs, e- EFTs. They weren't quite sure what they were. Give us a little background on uh, those are early 2000s, mid 2000s period in your world. Yeah, so it was a really interesting time to be uh, starting to work. I mean, you had the big internet bubble. You know, ETFs were just starting to be launched. Back then, like the ticker for the NAV of an ETF wasn't like SPY IV, let's say. It was, you know, some random ticker. So did a lot of work with uh, institutional investors on, you know, how do you get exposure to emerging markets? Again, EEM wasn't around that back then, so you'd have to put together like an optimized swap basket of like ADRs and local futures to try and get exposure to, you know, uh, emerging markets to kind of equitize cash. No one knew back then that ETFs would be as successful as they are today. I think like originally it was launched for like institutional clients, but then was quickly adopted on the wealth management side uh, by financial advisors. So even at Merrill Lynch, you know, they we we would the quant guys, you know, that would be responsible put together like ETS that would track our strategist views. So, you know, we had some pretty well known strategists. You know, Richard Bernstein was the head of strategy. Dave Rosenberg, you know, we were the quant group that would like take their views and put together ETFs. You know, for financial advisors. So, I mean, those ETF model portfolios are huge and massive now. You know, twenty years later, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was a great place to work and, you know, a lot of famous research analysts, as I mentioned, Rich Bernstein, Dave Rosenberg, Steve Kim, 
you know, even like Henry Blodgett was very big at the time, Steve Milanovich, the tech analyst. Um, so it's a great place to work and start. And, uh, you know, definitely was one of the earlier guys in the ETF ecosystem for sure. So you spent your time, you did your time working uh, for some of these big giant firms. And then you said, okay, I have the gall, the naive optimism to be an entrepreneur and start my own shop. Give us a little bit of the inspiration and tell us a little bit about your company today. Yeah. So, you know, the goal was always to manage money and to join the buy side. And, um, you know, I think as I got older in my mid thirties, it was like, okay, like I knew that like, if I had joined the hedge fund that, you know, your risk capital was going to be watched very closely you know, if you have a down quarter, that's something that Steve Kim had taught me quite a bit on is like, you know, just make sure when you join the buy side, you know, all your ducks in a row, you can take that career risk because it's not easy. Uh, so I thought that, um, you know, I had developed, I thought, an edge, an ETF. You know, I knew the tickers. I knew how they worked. I, I knew from working with providers, you know, how they constructed these portfolios. I spent a lot of time doing index research, learning portfolio construction, macro, quant. So I just thought, all right, here's a chance for me to like, you know, start, you know, my own company, you know, join the buy side, be an entrepreneur, kind of do it all at once. So Astoria Portfolio Advisors launched in 2017. I put together the business plan back in like uh, 2014. So how similar does it look? (laughs) I always love looking back on business plans because so many successful companies and ideas. I mean, I joke looking back on kind of what we began as is nothing resembling today was was yours pretty close uh, or uh, is it straight quite a bit the costs have come down right there's been you know firms issue model portfolios for free quotation mark for free not really true right because they have like their own underlying etf management fees that they're accruing interest on and fees but yeah i mean there's a lot more competition now than it was back then but you know we've developed a niche like we serve as an outsourced cil to independent financial advisors, RAs, you know, firms sub half a billion, let's say, that really need like a macro quant, you know, kind of strategist, you know, to kind of develop their solutions. And not only that, but also to do the physical trading on their behalf. We're going to get to some of you coming full circle, you know, starting out really as ETF strategist, starting your own company and now launching two funds. But I want to hear a little bit about y'all's framework because, man, John, you put out a lot of content and coming from a content creator, I know how hard that is. Tell us a little bit about Astoria's framework. So how do you approach the world? What are your main sort of levers when you're building these model portfolios? Are you just doing a fancy 60-40 or is it uh, a lot more involved in that? I think there's you know, kind of three buckets for how we determine our strategic asset allocation. So one is kind of the business cycle, i.e. identify where we're on the business cycle, to looking at like earnings and valuations together. Valuations are a tool, not the only tool, but, you know, really kind of looking at those together, like, you know, is a stock cheap or is a country cheap, but are their earnings growing? So that's a second input. And then third would be kind of sentiment. So those three things, like where are we in the business cycle, looking at earnings and valuation, and then third sentiment, that really dictates our you know, strategic asset allocation. We have a dynamic overlay, so we're going to use those three inputs, but then also use liquid alternatives as a way to kind of dampen our volatility. Essentially, Meb, what we're looking to do is buy you know, cheap assets where their earnings are growing, 
you know, they're cheaper than the market. There's poor sentiment and there's a clear catalyst for upside. Uh, we could talk about afterwards, but we kind of identify Europe and Japan as that, you know, strategic overlay, let's say. No, let's hear about it now. I thought you were just going to say you have all your money in, in video, but let's hear about it. Where are some of the signals pointing and kind of why? Let's hear the thesis. Yeah. So, you know, Europe is a, is a country in a region where like you've got strong earnings momentum, you've got positive estimate revisions, they're cheap, and you've got a catalyst for upside. The catalyst for upside is the fact that the three inputs I just mentioned, uh, it's very underweight in people's portfolio. They're much further behind the inflation cycle, the interest rate cycle. So like that's an overweight. Contrast that to U.S. where, you know, all people want to do. And on your show, you've talked a lot about home country bias. Like all financial advisors want to do is own U.S., right? But if you look at the U.S. story, you're in an earnings recession, right? So earnings aren't great. They're very, very expensive. If you look at Case-Shiller P ratio, it's, you know, 30, let's say. You know, only people want to do is own the Magnificent Seven, thinking that those are the only good stocks to own. So, you know, that's an area where we, let's say, be underweight. So that's kind of like how we're thinking about, like, you, you know, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, looking at the sentiment, it's just down at this financial conference, Future Proof, and it feels like every advisor I talk to is either hugely underweight foreign, you know, and they just said, look, we've, we haven't owned any, we don't want any for the past decade. And then the ones that do own it look pretty beat up and despondent. And they're almost like looking for some comfort. But even then, they're almost like looking for an excuse to get rid of it. And there's like, like almost like the I can't take it anymore part of the sentiment, which is some, like it's just pretty astonishing to me to feel how poor the sentiment is. But, you know, sentiment's always a little squishy for me. And it's always hard to gauge exactly what what it really feels like other than it was crazy extremes. You know, there is a point in time in my career where, you know, emerging markets was the only kind of hot area, right? Where you wanted to invest in like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you know, China, India. It was like- It feels like around 06 in the timeline. To me, that was a really 05, 06 was a, the BRICS was the SPAC. It's not SPACs anymore. Now, <laughs> now the uh, AI of the day. You know, if you were to do every year, like what the most popular topic was emerging markets, it's hard to tell people to like convey that today because they're just forgotten. But they were the AI of the day 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, AI is interesting. If you look at like the big banks on Wall Street, none of them were actually talking about AI in their year ahead outlooks. Right. So, you know, it's only September. Right. So that was only nine months well, actually, those sell side, and I worked on the sell side, I know they start putting those reports together like in October of, uh, you know, before year end. But, you know, I would just say that like investors have to be, you know, look outside the US because I've seen periods in my career where it's about other countries, you know, Europe, Japan. And so it's not just a, a US home country bias in our portfolios for sure. All right. So you're going against the grain a little bit, owning some of those. What else? You mentioned the sort of alts or inflation basket? How do you approach that? Because that means a lot of different things, a lot of different people. Yeah. So, you know, principally, like when we put together like our pillars for investing, it's like, okay, we believe in after tax, after inflation, risk adjusted returns, right? So because we're a physical sub-advisor and we manage money on behalf of other financial advisors, we're always, you know, thinking about after tax, right? So tax loss harvesting is, is a big deal for our standpoint, what I tell people about inflation, obviously, I'm very biased. We run an inflation strategy, whether inflation's two, whether it's four, whether it's nine. You know, we tell people, right? Bogle, Vanguard, World, you know, invest for the long run, right? Stiegel, 
you know, stocks for the long run. So 2% a year over 20, 30 years, I mean, that can seriously compound. And then, you know, risk adjusted, right? Like that is a big thing. Like having worked at a bank in 08, you know, Merrill Lynch, you know, was acquired in the very last minute. Like you learn about left tail risks on the sell side, right? I feel like the sell side, you focus on the left tail, the buy side, you focus on the right tail. So just having that, you know, background working at a bank and then like at a bank that was acquired in the last in, ninth inning, and, you know, so we do use alternatives. And to your point, Meb, alternatives that have very low correlations or ideally like strongly negatively correlated. So there are some strategies in ETFs where you get like very negatively correlated, you know, long, short market neutral ETFs. Sometimes advisors come to me and say, oh, I own alternatives and it's like some mortgage read or, you know, something that's like positive correlated, you know, high yield bonds. So those are the kind of like three pillars for investing, you know, and it's about, I would say, 10, 15 percent of, of a portfolio. So that's kind of a little bit about investing. I was laughing as you're talking about this because at Future Proof, Bill Gross was on stage and they were talking about like, you know, what's your trades, what's your portfolio? And he said, 40 percent of my portfolio today is in MLPs. And I heard that and my jaw just kind of dropped because MLPs were also there was a big cycle. Everyone was marketing MLPs. I don't was that like five years ago, and they've long since been forgotten because they struggled. But to hear uh, someone like Bill, who's a billionaire, come and say, "Darn near half his portfolio is MLPs," was pretty funny. You mentioned after tax. I mean, that's a topic that certainly people, I feel like, talk about, but it doesn't get enough appreciation. Really, you know, after tax, after expenses, risk adjusted. You know, really, I feel like. We live in a nominal world that everyone is is really just looking at the nominal returns and underappreciated. I mean, I guess the serious crowd, I think it gets there, but I feel like that's pretty underappreciated to hear, you know, on, on all those measures. I mean, I, I think the, the beauty of ETFs is that, you know, when you deal in those large Morningstar buckets, you know, you've got so many different ETFs that can fill your, you know, develop Europe, your emerging markets, you know, if you're in large cap, small cap in the U.S., so, you know, the beauty of ETFs is like you just punt in the basis down the road, right? So you swap out of one, you know, emerging market ETF and into another that's 90% correlated. So, you know, it's great from that standpoint. It's very rare to do. I think like some of my peers, Meb, they're just on different platforms and, you know, they put their asset allocation models on platforms, but the, those platforms are not going to tax those harvest. Like how could they possibly know what the replacement ticker is? So when you when you use a sub-advisor like us and we're bolted underneath you at the custodian, like a Schwab for LTD, like we're going to do that systematically. So we've got, you know, full trading team. We've got, you know, back office operations. I mean, I think that's hugely important to do that for sure. Yeah. This is a little bit of a nerd alert, but one of the advantages of using ETFs too, usually across the board is the short lending revenue, which, you know, isn't crazy on the numbers. I mean, in some cases it is crazy high, but, you know, usually it is a material amount, maybe five basis points, 10, 20. But when people spend so much time focused only on like things like expense ratio, this is an extra benefit that almost no one talks about or understands. So you guys got a lot going on on this framework. Why don't we spend just a little more time here and then we're going to hop over to two particular ideas that are super interesting. As you look around the world and as the strategic, you know, here we are in almost God, Q4 of 2023. Almost hard to say. So we're mid-September right now recording this. What does the world look like as far as these allocations? You mentioned a little Europe and Japan. Japan is certainly 
seeing a renewed interest anytime Uncle Warren Buffett is taking his jet somewhere at this age, you know, it's uh, going to hit the media cycle. But uh, what, what else are you guys thinking about? I think uh, going into this year, basically, everyone predicted that we were going to have an economic recession. There was going to be a DEFCON 5 moment for U.S. equities. You know, we we're going to have a profits recession. So we told our investors, like, look, consensus trades rarely pan out, right? Maybe one of those three things would happen, but not all three. So we're still in an earnings recession here in the US. We don't have an, ec- an economic recession. Uh, and certainly we didn't have like a DEFCON 5, 20% pullback in the S&P. You know, I would say right now, if anything, you know, this year's market reaction didn't necessarily make us overly bullish on the US when you've got investors crowded into just seven stocks. So we we had no choice but to kind of look overseas. When I look at the U.S., because it, it does make up 50% of the world, you know, I would say that like, yeah, GDP is a lot stronger than what we, you know, mo- most people anticipated. I think that light, the tight labor market and the consumer is kind of keeping things together. What we tell people is like, look, watch, you know, consumers health. It's now two years where they're paying elevated prices for rent and for, you know, food, right? Grocery shop. And so the minute people lose their job, I think you start to get things a little bit more trickier. But what I think everyone missed, and truly we missed, and I'm not afraid to say it, is, you know, there was about a trillion dollars of stimulus put into the economy, you know, all these like extension of student li- student loan uh, memorandum, Medicare, and you just can't put a trillion dollars into the economy without having a positive, you know, reaction. And this is why we don't just invest in macro, right? Because, you know, yes, like there's some macro stuff that's pretty bad, PMIs, you know, you've got the fiscal stimulus you know, that supportive asset prices, but you really got to kind of marry the macro with the earnings. And, you know, there's a good earnings story in Europe, Japan that you just don't have in the U.S. So I think that's crucial. All right. Listeners, you heard it here first. All right. So we mentioned earlier, coming full circle, you've been at this game for a long time. You said, you know what? We got to do our own ETFs. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration Tell us a little bit about the experience. Was it nerve wracking? Was it a piece of cake? Was it exciting? You now have two. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about the strategies behind both. Sure. And we're the sub-advisor for both ETFs. So Axis Investments, we partnered with them to launch the inflation uh, strategy. And then technically our other ETF is with you know Wes Gray's firm and he's technically the advisor, we're the sub-advisor. So we just thought we'd keep that clean. It's clear in the asset management industry, you've got to have a strategy for ETFs. And, you know, when I worked on the sell side at Morgan Stanley, you know, these big asset managers were like, even back in like 20, you know, 2010, 2011, like, okay, are we going to get into this space? Are we not getting it? And you saw some of these guys came in just in the last few years, Capital Group launching only in like, you know, last year or two and having a lot of success. For us, it's like, okay, could we bring assets to the table? Like, we're not going to launch an ETF where we can't put our clients' assets behind it. So, for us, the first ETF, the inflation strategy was very clear. Like we had to, you know, in March, June 2020, and it was very clear to us inflation was going to be a problem. In my economics 101 class, they told me, okay, if you restrict supply, you increase demand, prices go up, right? So you didn't have to be like a quant or a PhD to understand that we would have an inflation problem. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This is different from like 08 when like the banks were bailed out but all the money was given to the banks. It didn't actually go in the real economy. Here, they were just like, it was like literally helicopter money in the streets and housing. So we told our investors, okay, let's put 10% of your 60-40 or your 50-50 and let's put together like 10 different 
inflation-linked ETFs that would help hedge your inflation risk if inflation were to be your problem. So we started doing that in like, you know, September of 2020. And then, um, you know, we had known the guys at Access Investments and uh, from a, I had known them from a prior life. So we said, look, you know, we can kind of scale this thing and it's much more tax efficient when we're making changes within the ETF as opposed to like we're balancing an SMA. So uh, we launched an inflation strategy in, in December of 2021, a very good experience. And, uh, you know, we still think there's a place for it. You know, we are mantra MEB is that, you know, higher rates, higher for longer. It's now consensus, but we had this view, you know, two years ago that we'd be living in a higher interest rate world. And then our second ETF, which is uh, just more of a plain Jane kind of quality invest in ETF, 100 stocks, equally weighted. That was more because of the concentration risk we're seeing in the U.S. market pl- marketplace. And we thought that, you know, I've seen periods of my career where, you know, a few stocks dominate the indices, like in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we were just uncomfortable with some of the own ETFs we were using, just as super mega concentration risk in tech stocks and semiconductors. So that was the impetus. Like, we'd really have to get our backs behind it. Like, that's our unique position as a sub-advisor. And we're just going to put our you know, clients assets behind it. And if we can do that, then we would launch more ETFs. All right. Well, let's hear about it. The PPI is the ticker. Great ticker. You guys know I love my tickers. Tell us a little bit about what goes into the strategy. You guys just going YOLO long into gold calls or what? What's the strategy entail? All right. So it's, so we run like a quant screen and say, okay, what are the sectors that have the most sensitivity to higher in inflation going back, you know, decades and decades, right? So those sectors tend to be historically energy, materials, and industrial stocks, financials as well. But, you know, you got a stronger cohort, you know, with the energy and material stocks. So basically the strategy and, you know, global, it's a global problem, right? Inflation. So globally, we're going to own, you know, 40, 50 stocks, 10 in those four sectors, uh, five US, five non-US generally speaking, kind of equally weight. So it's a multi-asset ETF because different asset classes will perform differently depending on where you are in the inflation cycle. So sometimes it's you know just actual commodity equities. Sometimes it's just those energy stocks, material stocks. Sometimes it's physical commodities. You know, there's been periods of time even since we launched our strategy where you know there's a positive carry for owning commodities. Now there's a cost. So it's an active asset allocation kind of like, um, let's say 70 to 80s are pure equities, 10, 15% physical commodities, you know, 10, 15% tips. Uh, the commodities and the tips tend to be other ETFs because it's just a lot easier as opposed to us rolling futures and buying individual QCIPs in the case of tips. Inflation being such a highly nuanced strategy, we just thought that you need to be active and to have a great partner like Access that has deep experience and you know, liquid alts and being an advisor and, you know, helping with the sales and marketing. So, yeah, we often say on the buy and hold side, the two areas that are lacking in most investor portfolios we see are one, obviously a global focus. And two is the real asset bucket. And almost every investor we see has really nothing in real assets. They typically may own a home personally, but as far as their actual portfolio, usually they have almost zero. And those two to me are are kind of glaringly obvious. This cycle, I think, is starting to wake people up to that. But certainly the older cohort that remembers 
I mean, my father-in-law, you know, if we're moaning about our high mortgage, he was like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like mortgages back in the day could easily be double digits. So I feel like the memory of inflation, and certainly if you go around the rest of the world, inflation is something that is much more front of mind than it is in the U.S. And we'll see. I mean, we're, we're kind of hanging out around that not too comfortable 4% range, which I think if that sticks around for a longer period of time, certainly will be a regime shift from the old days of zero to two. Yeah. Well, I think the last 15, 20 years has been about globalization, which is deflationary. As you think about these complex issues like US-China relations and what's going on with Taiwan, you know, kind of onshore and reshore. And like, if you were a CEO of a large Fortune 500 company and your supply chains were stopped because of this China COVID issue a couple of years ago, you really got to have a strategy. Okay, are you going to build your supply chain back in the US? And oh, by the way, like, how long is that going to take? Like, and oh, by the way, you've got to, you know, we have labor laws here in this country, right? So, you know, these are very complicated issues. We told investors that, look, I think all this stuff is going to be uh, very inflationary. It's going to be higher, stickier for longer. If you just look at CPI in the 70s, you know, CPI was above 5% for 10, 15 years, right? It was between 5 to 15. It fluctuated. So, and there's some charts right now that people overlay, you know, kind of the 70 CPI we're now, and they argue that, you know, kind of inflation is going to be a little bit hotter. And, you know, we had two inflation prints this week as we filmed this podcast and, you know, they've both been hotter than expected. But yes, definitely it's come down quite a bit from nine back to, you know, four, let's say, or three. But the key is like to get it back down to two, like what does the Fed do, right? Do they really kitchen sink the economy and put everything into a recession or they let it run, you know, at 3%. And my gut says, you know, and you're right, like in, Overseas, they deal with inflation all the time, right? Think about Turkey, Russia, Brazil, like they constantly have inflation problems. Whereas, you know, we as a US country just aren't not used to it. But I think the tide may shift in future in years to come. You get an added benefit right now, listeners, of the sectors that John mentioned being pretty strong value contenders too: materials, industrials, energy, financials, on and on, particularly in the United States. We've talked a lot about this, and I'm still pretty firm in the camp of this being one of the best times ever to be having a value tilt. And so you get kind of a double whammy here. You get value tilt, and you also get this potential inflation exposure tilt. So uh, we'll see how it plays out, but uh, I certainly like it. You got any crypto in here? The modern precious metals? I, you know, a lot of people, I don't know, really know what to think about that world. Is that a potential entrant current portfolio holding? You know, it, it hasn't been only because we try and stick to the research and, to, you know, we're trying to be very quantitative and systematic. And these are just a new, it's a new phenomenon, right? Cryptos. Conceptually, it makes sense, right? Bitcoin is, you know, whatever, 19 million has been mined. They only have 21 million coins in total. There's going to be a reach. I mean, we would not be surprised if we see, you know, Bitcoin, you know, kind of do better in years to come, but not because of its inflation, just because it's it operates to its own beat. But um, I like what you said before about, you know, you know, value stocks, because it is like the P ratio for our strategy is 10. You know, you think about the U.S., right? It's like 20 times forward earnings. So if people, bu advisors bucket our strategy in the alternatives bucket, 
And it's a compliment, right? Because if you're going to run like a 60-40 and have a lot of concentration in like large cap index beta strategies, our fund, you know, it's underweight, right? There's a chart that's floating around Twitter. It's got Michael Kantrowitz. Actually, we worked in Maryland Quant Research back in the late 90s. And he shows you like the sector weights of like, you know, basically cyclicals, which is the four sectors we just talked about versus like growth plus defensive. So that would be like tech stocks, utility staples. And it's at 100 year wides in terms of like how much S&P is dominated by growth plus defensive sectors versus cyclical. So we just tell people like, and uh, I'll give credit to Nassim Taleb, like he was on TV one time. He was like, look, you know, you don't time your car insurance or your home insurance. So, and his argument was like, don't, time your disaster insurance, let's say, we just take that to the next level and say, look, you know, just you should always have inflation insurance because A, they're cheap right now, right? I've seen periods in my career where these energy stocks are the, literally the biggest in the world, right? ExxonMobil was the biggest stock in the world for many, many years when I, when I was starting my career. And, you know, it doesn't cost you a lot. It's like a 10P ratio. And, you know, there was some inverse correlation that we saw in our strategy last year where our strategy was up but you know, the SP was down significantly. So it kind of works well and it carries well in the portfolio. All right, let's hop over to ROE, another killer ticker, man, two for two. What's the thesis behind this strategy? What are you guys doing here? So we're multi-asset investors and on the equity side, you know, we do believe in like combining factors in your portfolio because you know, the research shows that when you combine factors, you've historically been able to get higher up on the fish and frontier. So, you know, kind of owning a basket of, you know, quality, value, you know, size, you know, we do subscribe to that notion. And there's a lot of research and you've had, you know, Swedra on your podcast and talking about this and other, you know, Rob or not. I would say that right now, most people would not, most people would be surprised if we said that the equally weighted S&P index has actually outperformed the S&P 500 index, you know, since 1999, which is when data goes back. And um, I'm not even sure why S&P doesn't go back till the start of their index. I mean, they should, and like, they've got the constituents. Well, you can ask your buddy, you can ask your buddy Wes to do it. Those quants can certainly tease that out. The S&P equally weighted index, the index has actually outperformed the S&P 500 index since 1999. You've had some mega cap rallies. I think you can definitely go back on that. The um, looking at equal weight, you know, Rob or not, who you mentioned has done a lot here in his book, Fundamental Index. And like the first step of anything where you just break that market cap link, you know, and the problem with market cap, it's totally fine most of the time. But particularly when you get these boom environments, 99, I'd argue today, or even more so a couple of years ago, but obviously Japan in the 80s is like the granddaddy, but it happens in sectors and countries as well. When you have these boom times, the market cap, because there's no tether to fundamentals, goes nuts. And so equal weighting severs that a little bit, but factor weighting, which is what you're digging into, severs that even more because it gives you a tilt towards a certain characteristics, which historically have been very favorable. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So just the point here is like, you know, the historical Kager and, you know, all the past performance on digging future results, but the historical Kager of the equally weighted index is almost 9%, whereas the actual S&P historical Kager since 1999 is about, you know, 5%. So you get almost like 400 basis points, you know, pickup based on history. 
And, you know, that's pretty substantial. So we just thought, okay, like our current ETFs that we use, you know, smart bait ETFs, index beta, depending on the man that we have a range of strategies, range of solutions. There's just way too much concentration risk in just these seven stocks. So we thought, okay, we always want to be tilting towards quality. We like that. That's our true north. But let's just equally wait. And, you know, and we're still using some other smart beta ETFs in our strategies and SMAs. So it, we, what we tell people is like, use it as a compliment. Don't replace your S&P 500 index ETF. You know, use this as a compliment to augment and help diversify a bit. And you're never going to get to $5 billion without telling them to replace all of the S&P. But I appreciate your candor. Um, talk to us a little bit about both these funds have been successful. Talk to us a little bit how you did it. How have these both been a success and what's the plan on kind of growing them going forward? Well, I, I would say, you know, content is important. So we produce quite a bit of content. You know, we're kind of out loud and do we do a lot of, you know, media. We write a lot of blogs, do videos and whatnot. Where does most of that sit, by the way, for the listeners who are new to you? Where can they find most of that? It's AstoriaAdvisors.com. That's where most of our content is. You know, I think for us, like as a, as a sub-advisor, we're always like, okay, what are we lacking in our portfolios? Where could there be a better solution? And then, you know, let's look if we can improve the solution by launching a strategy. So that's really, we use ourselves as like the litmus test. So you like, you won't see us go ahead and launch in like, you know, some crypto ETF just because like, we're just not set up that way, right? Like if we can use in our own models, like we think that that is, you know, the first, you know, step in like the decision tree, you know, the second and future steps would be, is there viability? Like we would hate to launch something and have to close it because, you know, then it like we misforecasted, let's say, try and think about very long term themes, you know, things like, you know, uh, inflation, you you should, we think that you should have an inflation strategy perp- in perpetuity, like, you know, whether it's this year or next year, CPI goes back down to two, you should have it. You know, I think equally weighted is very interesting. And, and certainly we're not the first firm that equally weights. I mean, you know, as there's been many other peers that launched, you know, Wisdom Tree, you know, they made a lot of success by tilting away from Mark Cap. Obviously, Rob or not, with what he does with his partners. So I, I think like we try and look at a few different buckets. And, um, you know, that that's essential. And content is huge for us. Like we have to be educating advisors how to use it. So think about this. Like we get inbound, right? Because we have existing advisors that we manage. So like they're constantly coming to us. Like how does this fit in? How do I size it? Um, how should I asset allocate? So um, that's we don't have any plans for additional strategies as of yet, but that's been a good experience so far. So no more uh, imminent ideas on the horizon, it sounds like. I don't know if I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Today's podcast is sponsored by the Idea Farm. Do you want the same investing edge as the pros? The Idea Farm gives you access to some of these same research, usually reserved for only the world's largest institutions, funds, and money managers. These are reports from some of the most respected research shops in investing. Many of them cost thousands and are only available to institutions or investment pros. But now they can be yours with a subscription to the Idea Farm. Are you ready for an edge? Visit theideafarm.com to learn more. Well, let's go back to markets a little bit. We've covered a little bit. You were on a podcast recently where you said you're going to ask the next person on the podcast, if you had to pick one country to invest in in the next 10 years, what would it be? So I'm turning it back around to you. What's your one country if you got to close your eyes, hold your nose for the next decade? That's a tough question, man. You asked it, not me. So you're the author. 
It would probably be um, for me, and uh, we're thinking about like sector size, style, right? Like we're thinking about all these different asset allocation, but I pick, you know, one of the large emerging markets, you know, something like India. Um, I do think that there's a ways to monetize, you know, a billion people in a country. You know, I think China is very, very controversial. I, I have some peers of mine that are all about China. It's good contrarian trade. Everyone hates it. You know, they're cutting rates, but I think India is a way to kind of play that same concept, but just it's a little cleaner. I see a lot of value in that uh, in that region of the world. Yeah, we just did a podcast talking about India and tech, which went pretty deep on the topic. I still haven't been. I need to get over there, but certainly um, fascinating country and opportunity. When you look at just the scale, it's hard to fathom, I think, for most people in terms of just how many folks you have in that part of the world. And certainly the potential is, uh, is staggering. Another fun question we'd like to do for people, and I'm guessing as a New Yorker, you're going to have plenty of opinions, but what belief do you have that the vast majority of your peers, so call it two thirds, three quarters, disagree with? It would definitely be the home country bias for sure. I mean, just, you know, I spent a lot of my time traveling internationally when I worked on the sell side, I would go to meet with like you know the de- the central bank of Denmark and Japanese pension funds, Taiwan Taiwanese life insurers. I mean, there's such a home country bias here in the U.S. and the rest of the world. Just to think like that, they're much more global. So I would say that, along with the fact that everyone, you know, doesn't want to own alternatives, and I, they do serve a valuable place in your portfolios if you can pick the right strategy, and if they're cheap and if they're implementable. There's alternatives that are complicated, you know, all sorts of, you know, tax issues and whatnot. But if you can find it in ETF wrapper and if it's inversely correlated, it can really help. Because what I find from managing money is that, you know, in bull markets, clients are annoyed, right? They're like, oh, the Nasdaq's up 30. Why is your 80-20 portfolio only up, you know, 10%, let's say, right? But they really value when that Nasdaq index, which was only last year, was down 30, 35 when you're 60, 40, 80, 20 is down, you know, a fraction of that. So, you know, having alternatives certainly helps in those bad years. And there's a stat, you know, people feel the loss two times greater than they feel the gain when it comes to investing. So what do you say to people and give us a little bit of feedback on the vibe on, you know, you mentioned this home country bias, but I talked, I mean, so many of people I talked to, it's like you, you brought up something that's just so unpalatable. I was having a conversation with an advisor this week and they were talking about how the US deserves this current valuation premium to the rest of the world. And I said, yeah, maybe they do. I mean, it's certainly at a huge premium right now. And I said, well, just historically curious, I said to this person, I said, what do you think the historical valuation premium of the US over the rest of the world has been? And because it's a lot now. And they were trying to guess 20, 30% or something. And I said, well, the answer is zero. Like the actual valuation premium is zero. It just happens to be in this since 2009, you've had this era or regime where the US valuations have gone straight up and the rest of the world is, you know, kind of sideways and muddled along. It's just most people think that a decade or 13 years is a infinite amount of time in an investor's lifetime. But in a timeline of markets, it's it's not that much. And I was going to say, so give us a little, like, what do, you, what do you say to people and kind of how do you deal with these advisors and investors who are saying, John, you're kind of a moron. I'm all in the US and I'm stomping everything. So 
Well, what do you know? Well, I would say that you know, there's periods of time where Japan, you know, Europe, emerging markets can do significantly better than the U.S. I mean, the U.S. should deserve a premium. We've got, you know, much better companies in general, I would say, you know, better technology, better healthcare companies. You just don't have that in like Europe, Japan, let's say on a relative basis. You know, U.S. should deserve a premium because we have better companies, maybe better regulatory, better tax uh structure, but it shouldn't deserve the premium that it has now. To play devil's advocate, what I would say is that, you know, some of these other non-US markets, you know, they do trend and they can exhibit, you know, some fair amount of momentum, which then you get into like a timing issue. So we would just tell people like, look, you should just own all of it, maybe tilt one way or another, depending on your views, but definitely don't try and time it or try and be tactical with it. I think U.S. should deserve a little bit of a premium, but I think if you're looking to be fully invested, you should own both. So we've kind of danced around the world, talked about a lot of things. As we look out to 2024, anything we haven't talked about that you think is particularly interesting that's on your brain, anything you're excited about, you're working on? I know you write so much that you look forward to the notes that you're getting ready to put into production. What else are you thinking about that we haven't really dug into today? I would just make a point about, um, we talked a little bit about like Swedro and he's got this one book that we tend to give to advisors. And we say, look, if you know, whatever we say about macro and we have like a 50 slide deck cover of our website, storyadvisors.com, where we literally show people like what our tilts are, a lot of the indicators that we look at, you know, we're very, very transparent. You know, we will tilt towards a factor depending on where we're on the cycle. But, you know, Swedro's book, I think, is for people that are like really curious why you want to own something besides beta, because, you know, the masses, you know, the big Vanguard, State Street, they give away beta for free, right? So should you just build a portfolio of just zero cost beta equity and fixed income ETFs? And there is a lot of value in owning other factors. And Swedro, book, I think, is really seminal to kind of how we invest, which is like he and his book, and he's got data goes back, you know, 75 years where he says, okay, a 25% allocation to the beta factor, the size factor, value, momentum gets you a sharp ratio of about 0.7. And, you know, momentum has, you know, similar sharp ratio, but, you know, lower, right? It's like about 0.6, let's say. But, you know, momentum is very, very volatile, right? Could have a good year and then a terrible year. So if you equal weight beta size value momentum, you get a 0.7 sharp ratio. Then his book, and there's a table that says, okay, if you take those four factors and you add profitability, you get a 0.9 sharp ratio. Then if you substitute quality for profitability, and I don't want to get into the weeds about the difference between those two, you get a sharp ratio of 1.1. Basically, in the last two data points I mentioned, you're getting almost triple the sharp ratio if you just own any one factor. So I know beta is great, it's zero, but you really, for the efficient frontier frontier standpoint, it's good to own a lot of factors because there's years when value will do better, there's years where small caps do better. Again, here we are, Meb, right? Nobody wants to own small caps. Nobody wants to own value. It's just about large cap, not even about beta. It's about mega cap beta in the US only, right? So, you know, he's got all these great stats, you know, the odds of underperforming a strategy over one, three, five year period, and all the odds, uh, you know, 
greatly are in your favor over long periods of time when you harvest a portfolio of factors. And I would just encourage listeners to just look away from just mega cap beta, because I think in the next one, three, five, ten, you're going to find there's other strategies, other stocks that do better. Yeah, I think well said. It seems to be uh, thoughtful advice. You know, so many people, they want to find the perfect factor, but this concept of combining an ensemble, as some people call it, or a group of factors, multi-factor, certainly I think can be a really thoughtful way to go about it because so many people get caught up in a, like a binary world where all their decisions are in or out, this one, that one, when in reality, the blend can still be much better and the composite can be much better than the individual alternative, which is this market cap entry price, but not something that necessarily, I think uh, it's cheap, but doesn't mean it's going to be a great thing. Yeah. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's good. You got to have more of a reason to own something. And honestly, I think, you know, the RIA world, you know, the ETF world, maybe firms like yours and mine, it's just exacerbated this problem, right? Because now anyone can build a portfolio. You can build a portfolio from your laptop on the beach and think you're getting a good solution because you're not paying any commissions, you're not paying any management fees. So we we look at this not like, hey, you know, this is not fair type thing. We say, look, you know, we think there's a great opportunity for active management. And, you know, frankly, I think active management has a little bit of a tailwind from this standpoint. But the problem that we have or we see with active managers is a lot of them don't take enough risk. You know, so if you read Barron's, you know, the portfolio management section every week, you know, their top stocks, for whatever reason they like it, you know, they're basically owning a lot of the stocks that are in the S&P in a similar weight, right? So you really got to like do something different and think outside the box. And then, of course, you need to time it, you need to size it, and then do take some risk. So we don't have problems like with the zero management fee world and zero cost world. Oh, the big guys give models away for free. Like we think that's exacerbating the problem and it's given us an opportunity and our clients like it. Like we've had, you know, some success over the years by doing these three tenants, right? Like the restaurant across factors, you know, using alternatives, investing for the long run, keeping our own costs low. So. Yeah. Well said. I mean, one of the biggest problems I think in our world is the seduction or laziness of many investors to not really read past the headline. And what I mean by that is, you know, so many people like Twitter, it's like, are you sure you want to comment on this? Have you actually read the article now? But like the headline of something And what I'm alluding to is the name of a fund. And so, so many funds, people, you know, what's the percentage that never read the prospectus? I don't know, 99%. And so thinking in terms of a lot of these funds that say there's something, but in reality, give you a closet index is kind of where I'm going with this. And if you're going to do a closet index, you definitely shouldn't be paying more than five basis points, right? Because the index (laughs) you can get for free, which you just mentioned. But so many of these funds, if you look at their history, either because they have raised a ton of assets, you know, some of these funds that are 50 billion it's hard to concentrate at 50 billion. Certainly if you say you're a small cap fund or something, right? So uh, challenging investors to look past just the name of something when they buy it, I think is, is pretty great advice because so many times we talk to people who end up buying something that is not what they thought they were getting. Yeah. So our, our two strategies, you know, one, our inflation strategy, we have, I think, 52 positions 
And then our other quality strategy has 100. And I think 100 is a lot, but uh, it is meant to be part of the core, whereas inflation is more, you know, kind of the alternatives, you know, kind of satellite. What I would say is that we do run these quantitative stock portfolios and we've been doing it, you know, since the firm started in 2017. We've always just owned in those quantitative stock portfolios, 40 stocks. Yeah. You know, I think the the flip side is that so many investors, they say they want to be concentrated. They say they want active. They say they want to look different. They say they want to put on these exposures as long as it goes up, as long as they're right. And the concentration, as we know, works both ways. But to me, and drilling down really kind of nerdy is there's a handful of tools, and I think our buddy Wes has one, but other sites that let you look into how much of the fund is really active share and what you're paying for it. Meaning it may sound great that something is only 10 basis points, but if it's giving you the closet index, well, that's pretty expensive 10 basis points. But if something is 75 basis points, but it's giving you something uh, that's a, a pretty unique and differentiated and concentrated exposure, then it could be totally reasonable. And so there's a lot of deep sort of analytics you could do there. But that's, again, going down the list of things investors will do. That's probably 10th you know, on the, on the list. But an easy way to do it often is just to pull up a chart and see how close to the S&P or whatever the index may be. Yeah, part of the reason uh, for us, the impetus to launch the quality is that like the S&P is being so concentrated by those seven stocks, fine, we all get it, we all know it. But just remember, all these smart beta ETFs are all optimized against the S&P, right? So they may be smart beta in their name or their title, but like they're still going to give you an outsized position and exposure to Microsoft, Apple. So we were just, I think it's a unique period. I don't think it stays that way. Like you know, if there's all these charts on Twitter circulating about the top stocks in the index and how it's evolved over time. And, you know, yeah, NVIDIA is a great company. Apple's a great company, but a great company doesn't always make a good stock investment. So it's a very unique period we're in right now, for sure. Well, certainly that example can be well documented from the late 1990s to today. There's so many charts where you look at a lot of these stocks and there's a lot of misconceptions too. People always say, well, no, those are stocks. They didn't have earnings. And actually they did. It was a lot of great companies. And not only that continued to increase their earnings for the better part of five, 10 years, but the stocks were so expensive relative to the underlying business uh, that we had a tweet the other day. It was a research affiliates article and we'll put it in the show notes, listeners. And this is a quote it said, how many of the 10 most valuable tech stocks in the world at the peak of the dot-com bubble beat the market by the time the next bull market peak in 2007? None. How many were ahead at the end of 2022, fully 23 years after the dot-com bubble crested? And the answer is only one, which was Microsoft. So it can go a really long period buying these super expensive companies over time. And 23 years is, I think, a lot longer than, uh, and many of these still exist and are fantastic businesses. They're just expensive stocks. Yeah. And remember, Microsoft wasn't in the original FANG index, right? Just kind of crept up in there in the last few years. And, you know, I remember being on the sell side and trading floor and like Microsoft was like a value stock and everyone was trying to buy it because, you know, why is this down so much? Hasn't gone up. Like it, it was, it was for 10 years, I think before Satya came, the CEO, like he revitalized that company, but like, it was just left for dead for 10 years, right? So 
that's the cycle from a quant standpoint, right? Like you go from like a value stock to growth, then momentum, and then could go back down. So single stocks are very, very difficult time for sure. John, what is your most memorable investment over your career? Memorable, good, good or bad? It can be either. It can be just whatever's burned into the frontal lobe of your brain. It could be painful, it could be wonderful, could be meaningless in terms of profit. I'll give you a few. So probably the worst was when I, in 1998, 97, I was in a mutual fund company and I was in a call center processing trades. And, um, you know, basically- Sounds exciting. Yeah, mutual funds. You know, basically like there was like a tech 100 mutual fund or maybe it was like 40 stock mutual fund. And my little brother graduated from um, the eighth grade and he wanted me to invest his money. And I bought the the tech mutual fund and, um, you know, then it went down 40% because, you know, the NASDAQ index fell 80%. So I made them whole, but that was like a very difficult, you know, kind of experience. So that's on the bad side. On the good side. Yeah. I mean, losing money for your family, you know, I think probably all of us in our 20s, imagine my crypto buddies that are younger can relate to this, but I don't know what the attraction is to try to wrangle our friends and family into terrible investments. I certainly went through that in, you know, the late 90s bubble and um, probably even a few times since then. But uh, there's a certain lure and the hard part is on the downside. You know, as you mentioned, there's mixing money with family is always such a painful and volatile combination. And this is one of the reasons when we talk about we keep saying we're going to write a book on this topic, but so many ways that parents as well as schools teach children to invest is really problematic. You know, these stock picking contests or parents say, hey, I'm going to give you child a thousand bucks. Let's go pick a stock and we'll talk about it. And as the stock goes up, it gives them a bonding thing. They're excited. The child's proud, looking for parent parental recognition. And then it goes down or they lose money. And there's this real emotion of shame and embarrassment. They don't want to talk about it. There's probably better ways to organize that sort of concept and make it educational where it's not something that just kind of teaches the wrong lesson, aka that Robin Hood app. Maybe they should read the quantitative approach to asset allocation. Your brother learned from it. You made him whole. Very generous old yeah. brother, by the way. <laughs> All right, give me the other one. On the good side, and this is a specific company, uh, just bought wisdom tree stock in, I forgot what year, but it was around two, three dollars, somewhere around there. And this was like before HDJ, DXJ, you know, and then, you know, saw the stock go up to like 20s, still a shareholder of it. But, you know, just this concept of like, you know, like the average stock doesn't actually go up in perpetuity, right? Maybe a basket of US larger cap, higher quality stock, you know, over time, like an ETF. But to see a stock go from four to 20, I thought I was the smartest guy in the room. But it really told me that when you invest in single names, you got to time it, you got to size it, and you got to have two decisions, right? Two smart decisions and correct. You got the entry and the exit. And I think the exit is the most difficult part of it. It's kind of not easy, but it's a little bit easier to kind of identify a good stock. But then the exit point is really, really difficult. So I thought I was the smartest guy in the room and it was a lesson to me like, okay, I find that I personally make more money when I do like strategic asset allocation as opposed to just individual names. Individual names are much tougher. 
John, this has been a whirlwind tour. We talked about a lot. Definitely have you back on as the world turns. I think you mentioned it one more time. Best place to find you guys? AstoriaAdvisors.com. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mab. It's been a blast. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.